Hello and welcome back to All Rings Considered, uh, a read-through The Lord of the Rings. We are on episode 15, that is book 2, chapter 3, The Ring Goes South. And just to qu give a quick summary here, uh, this chapter has two parts. The company starts off in Rivendell, and actually the company is decided, uh, and that's Gandalf, Aragorn, Frodo, Sam, Gimli, Legolas, Bill the Pony, Pippin and Merry. And then Frodo also uh, has a scene with Bilbo where he receives some gifts from Bilbo. He receives a sword and uh, some mail. And the company sets pretty, off. Pretty important, though. Yeah. We should just make a quick note because it's the sword is Sting from The Hobbit and then the mail is Mithril, oh. right? So. Oh, I know. <laughs> Did you just pick this up? It's really subtle. Actually, I think it's not mentioned that it's Mithril uh, in this chapter. Oh, but continuing actually, in that the, case, that is really cool. <laughs> and I should yeah. go back and check this. Well, anyway, okay. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then the journey begins, and the company is setting, uh, going south along the west side of the Misty Mountains. They encounter spies from the enemy, which takes the form of what they see are a flock of crows that are uh, flying around the area. And they decide to go for a pass along Karadras, um, which is a mountain uh, on the Misty Mountains. And it becomes so snowy and the weather is so awful that they decide they must uh, turn back and find another way to cross the mountain range. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that is this chapter. We have really two parts. Do we want to just go important things, part one, part two? Sure, yeah. Uh, just to start with, because you just mentioned that they didn't call it Mithril in this chapter. Hmm. I just checked. You're right. They don't. Bilbo calls it his dwarf male. Right. And so I guess if you remember enough about The Hobbit, you would you'll know it's Mithril, but that is interesting that he does not actually explicitly say that here. And Bilbo, the only hint to its strength is that Bilbo says uh, this line here. He says, uh, "I have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the Black Riders." Just that I have a fancy it would, instead of an outright statement. And then, yeah, nice little kind of bit to uh, a bit of setup here for how later on it is going to save Frodo's life pretty significantly. Yeah. And, uh, but that's not really like stated out right here, which is kind of cool. Well, I actually really like that little scene. I think that's one of the most important parts of this chapter is this um, gift giving from Bilbo to Frodo. Yeah. I might I might get a little soapboxy here, but I think it's it's such a nice scene of cuz they've already done the kind of the transfer of responsibility from uh, the past to the uh, to the present, but now they're doing this, and it's all it's actually kind of it's a, been perceived as kind of negative, where we you know oh like we have to make up for the failures of the past characters, but here it's something positive where you yeah. have you have Frodo. I mean you know how more symbolic can you get? It's like right on the nose. His you know what's protecting him and what's you know his weapon for going out into his adventure um, is given to him by his father figure. Yeah. And it's the past being able to actively help. So The Hobbit wasn't just a tale of this slight mistake and bringing the ring back into things, but it's also now getting the things in The Hobbit get to come back and contribute and to help uh, get rid of this ring and get rid of the bad. And actually, just and side note, just it's kind of entertaining. Bilbo takes 
uh, sting, the, the sword, and he jams it into a wooden beam. It says, he thrust it with little effort into a wooden beam in Rivendell. Um, and I just I love this image of him just really, like, <laughs> marring this this room that he's in. Just like, see, it's like really sharp. like Priceless elven construction, and, <laughs> right. and Bilbo's just hacking The senile away. hobbit going around <laughs> stabbing the walls. Yeah, I absolutely hope that's what Tolkien had in mind. Um, so any, anything else uh, meaningful in Rivendell before we set out? Yeah, I have a note here about how one of the themes you've been looking for is the Lord of the Rings' rejection of utilitarianism. And you see that here when they're deciding who can go in the company. And Elrond wants it to be very few people because he wants them to be sneaky and stealthy. And so he has to limit the people. And he says he does not want Merry and Pippin to go. But Gandalf steps in and says, in this matter, I think instead of doing the right thing, the wise thing, I think we should trust to their friendship. And that ends up working out really well, of course, because the book plays out. If Mary and Pippin don't go, I mean, all kinds of things are not going to end up the way they end up throughout Absolutely. this book. So uh, that ends up being the like right thing to do, even though it wasn't the sort of wise, big picture, here's what's the most good for the most people kind of thing. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I have a note here that Elrond, in the preceding paragraph, says, uh, I cannot help you much, not even with counsel. I can foresee very little of your road and how your task is to be achieved, I do not know. So it's really an admission of, even if you did want to do the utility-maximizing choice, it's you can't. There's too much uncertainty about how the world works to, to do that. And that's... Yeah. <laughs> Lord of the Rings right there. That's yeah. Um Do you have anything more for the first half or should we jump to when they've left Rivendell? No, let's let's travel? let's uh let's skip on out of Rivendell. And actually I really like you know we were talking about before we started recording. I really like this chapter. This chapter reminds me a lot of our hikes. Oh. You are mine. Uh Aww. just Yeah, I mean the horrible crows you know swarming yeah. us and the uh, barren landscapes <laughs> right <laughs> how dismal it all is, is much like... rougher and more barren than... <laughs> no but it, it has a very um it's one of those chapters i think a lot of people will maybe uh people who don't enjoy that sort of thing sort of like in the beginning of book one uh might just be turned off by yeah for sure i mean that comes up so much with this book it's like if you don't I feel like if you don't like walking yourself and hiking yourself, you just will not like Lord of the Rings. There's just too much of it in there. And uh, if you do like hiking, you end up actually really enjoying those parts because it does feel it's one of the best. It feels like it's one of the best walking books I've actually read as far as capturing the feel of the feeling you get when you are just walking day after day after day. This is a good chapter for that for sure. So let's see. Um, important things to mention about this half of the chapter. The first little leg of their journey. What have you got for me? Well, I got, so I get, you know what? I was waiting on this for this half of the chapter, but now I'm wondering if I should have put it in the second, in the, sorry, in the first half of the chapter. It's not too important, but I was thinking about how the date of their departure and like the date of this first little leg, all the book gives you is it says it's a day late in December, mm-hmm. but uh, according to like the reader's companion to the book and according to Tolkien's own notes somewhere or other, uh, the actual day they leave is December 25th. They leave December 25th. And 
that gets me thinking about so many things because that is uh, number one Christmas, of course. And the reason it's Christmas, though, is that traditionally that was when a lot of cultures celebrated the winter solstice every year. Hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, the winter solstice can vary by day, right? It doesn't have to be December 25th. But I think it was like a lot of cultures, traditionally, right, that's when a lot of cultures celebrated the winter solstice. And so that's when they leave. And so traditionally, that's tied to, it, this is the reason Christmas is celebrated on that day. It's because it's tied to sort of the rebirth of the world, right? Like the rebirth of the sun. So the shortest day is now over and the days will now get longer from then on out. Right. So they leave then. So this is like the world, them departing and then into this first little leg of the journey is representing the first little rebirth of the world. And it's kind of small scale, just like it is after the winter solstice in real life, of course, when, you know, the, yeah, the world's reborn, so to speak, but it doesn't look it yet. It's very slow to start. And you have this like small group of, of people in this book trudging along it's kind of a slow start to things but this is the beginning of the rebirth of the world hmm. so i think that's a that's a pretty cool date to have them start out on and it especially takes on significance when if you look up the date that the i think it's the date that the ring is destroyed it's either the date the ring is destroyed or the date frodo is rescued and brought back to to civilization from mount from mount doom that date is March 25th. March 25th is the date of the crucifixion. So it was said to be when, when Jesus was crucified. And as well as when Jesus was said to be conceived. Are you suggesting that Tolkien was influenced by Christianity? You know, just a tiny bit. Just a bit. But thematically, think about that. The, the fact that this quest takes place from that date, December 25th, winter solstice, Christmas, rebirth of the world, to like the total like arrival of the rebirth of the world, right, via the, mm. the crucifixion, I think there's definitely something being said there. Like I think Tolkien chose those days deliberately, and if not, if he didn't do it deliberately, then it is a nice parallel of this is the quest that's going to save the world like literally save the world or i guess to cause the world to be reborn right right to bring the world back to how it should be yeah absolutely some notes i have here um just interesting points uh that their first opponent uh Cahadras, is you know questionably not uh a servant of zaron i mean certainly right. you know Cahadras is not right um but no. they're their troubles first. Um, I actually really like that this chapter they spend so much of it uh, and, you know, ultimately fail struggling with the weather um, mm -hmm. and struggling against this force of the world that is not necessarily, um, you know, certainly malicious, but not, it's not all the same evil. Oh, one note, I just, I think it's like a small point that I think is kind of interesting. Gandalf has, you know, we know that Gandalf has one of the rings of power and in the Lord of the Rings, fire is often associated with, you know, um, they call it the flame imperishable, which is, in some sense, the soul of of God that is within each living being soul in Middle Earth. To its sort of representation of being able to create things. But Gandalf's ring is uh, a ring of fire, if I remember correctly, and Gandalf is, you know, a, a fire, a light, and fire um, magician, and his ring is. 
um, associated with being able to inspire courage. Um, and Gandalf says, it's kind of an offline, he's talking to Legolas that he can't just, you know, melt the snow with his, his staff in front of them. And he says, but I must have something to work on. I cannot burn snow. And I think about that in terms of him being able to inspire courage in others. He has to actually have other people around to inspire. And that's how Gandalf works in, you know, in these stories. He inspires others. I mean, he does have I his think own. And those people need to have a little bit of courage themselves, too. They need to have a little bit of the, the kindling needs to be right. in them. I, I wonder if he would even be able to do it with somebody who is a total coward forever. Yeah, absolutely not. There's definitely a, a part of some of that agency goes to the characters themselves. We'll actually see kind of a this little note continue in the next chapter because we actually do see Gandalf, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but we see Gandalf uh, use some fire in the next uh, couple chapters. Uh, yeah. So we'll kind of see a parallel here. I'm excited for the next couple chapters, that's for sure. Some of the best in the whole book, but we'll get there. Uh, another quick flame fire thing, you know, Aragorn's sword is revealed here in this chapter, or reforged, rather, in Rivendell. He names it Onderil, Flame of the West, so... Mm. Another good example there of fire as it's uh, inspired courage. And at the same time, you have that contrast, the, the the fiery mountain of Mount Doom weighs heavily on people's minds here too. There's right. that bit where, did you get, I love that funny bit, I don't remember the page, but there's that funny bit where Sam says, well, uh, it sounds like, I feel like we must be getting to the, about the end of, this, end of this, right? Like we should be seeing that fiery mountain anytime soon. And I thought it was that one up there until Gimli said it was one of his <laughs> mountains. And they're right. just so far away. <laughs> and he just has no idea. Yeah, well, um, this will probably be a pretty short episode. Um, do we want to move on to favorite lines? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Uh, my favorite line comes in the first half. And toward the beginning of the chapter actually as they're all still sort of resting in Rivendell and they, they're they waiting on the scouts to come back the scouts that are making sure there are no black riders around or anything so they can all set out and Tolkien describes the days slipping by but is getting into winter and he says uh, the hunter's moon waxed round in the night sky and put to flight all the lesser stars but low in the south, one star shone red. Every night, as the moon waned again, it shone brighter and brighter. Frodo could see it from his window, deep in the heavens, burning like a watchful eye that glared above the trees on the brink of the valley. I like this line because of the mystery of it, because I'm reading this thinking, what is that? Right. Uh, what's going on here is that, I mean, it can't be geographically, it can't be the eye of Sauron. No, in any meaningful way, because that's that's like thousands of miles away or something. But what is it? Is that a is that a star? And I, I was looking through the readers' companion here, and they said just casually, "Oh, some readers think this is Mars." I guess I don't know enough about astronomy to know if Mars would be this like would show up there relative to the latitudes Tolkien had in mind. But it almost doesn't matter what it is, like really symbolically and thematically, it is Sauron. It is like the threat of where Frodo has to go. I think I, I, I like the mystery of it and I like the sort of thematic or maybe some symbolism of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love, just like you were saying, I love the mystery. I love having things that are just kind of experiences that the characters have. They're just never really addressed necessarily what exactly yeah. they are because that's just the nature of experience. 
Uh, mine actually ties in. There's a lot of red. There's a lot of red in this chapter. Yeah. Mine ties in that way because I my favorite line is about Caradros. Um, it's in the second part of the, this chapter. At dusk, the company set out, and turning now half east, they steered their course towards Caradros, which far away still glowed faintly red in the last light of the vanished sun. One by one, white stars sprang forth as the sky faded. Mm. In paragraph, I just I absolutely love that line. And I think it's kind of a, I think it kind of represents a lot of what I really like about the way that Tolkien describes scenery and just describes the experience of seeing something where in the beginning it gives this this direction. Okay, so they're they're steering their course towards Kaidras. And then it gives, you know, I mean I can just I see this mountain, right? I see this glowing red, yeah. you know, uh, you know, just peak. And it's such a moment in time, right? I think Tolkien really, does, that's what I like, is he captures moments in time where you just, you know that feeling where it's the it's sunset. And then I just see, it's, it's a description of what it looks like, but, it's, but you can just see the expanse of, um, of time in it where one by one, white stars spring forth, just this, you know, pop, pop, sort of, you know. Uh, yeah just out from out from the distance and so it's not actually describing what the characters are doing but it's describing what that sensation was like i just love it yeah you know, i mean there really is to go back to something you just said earlier there's a lot of red in this chapter but also and you hear this in the line you picked there's also a lot of twinkling white star imagery yeah in the chapter too and that's the visual texture of this chapter which i think is interesting flames or redness happen a lot but then also white happens a lot whether it's the snow of Karadras, whether it is the mithril is described when that comes up and it's mm. it's uh described of it's shown like moonlit still silver and was studded with white gems i don't know that's a really cool contrast he has going on nice visual texture he has going on throughout this chapter yeah Gives it a distinct character, I guess, especially compared to the chapters we're about to read, where we're going about we're about to get no color whatsoever. So, uh, for at least for a little bit, I guess. I guess some red at the end of Bridge of Casa Doom. So, I guess we'll talk about that then. With that being said, we will see you all next week for Book Two, Chapter Four: A Journey in the Dark.